right. Gary is my IT guy, and so we are ready to get started. Now, the bonus of this week, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, and uh, the bonus of what we're doing this week is that I'm teaching tonight, and Robert is preaching it on Sunday. So Robert is going to be teaching from this passage of Scripture on Sunday, and I'm going to teach it tonight. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to, this is the only time I get to walk through this scripture. And I am as excited as I can be. Now, Jennifer Harris is with us. She's a Bible scholar. When was first Peter, <laughs> when was first Peter read? There are two schools of thought. And I will tell you in just a minute, which one I subscribe to. One school of thought says that Peter wrote it in his lifetime with the help of a scribe. The Greek is just too good for a Galilean fisherman. And so likely he had somebody who helped him with the grammar. The second idea is that it was written by one of his disciples, taking a, all of his letters and his words and his sermons and collecting them into uh, a letter that was then written somewhere around 75 to 95 AD because some of the cultural expressions uh, look more like what was happening later than what was happening earlier. Almost certainly Second Peter is that, but I believe that First Peter was written in Peter's lifetime uh, with the help of uh, his scribe, his amanuensis, who is named in chapter five. So that, that my, my thought is that the evidence is just not strong enough to make it a later date. The reason that that's important is that he is almost predicting some things that would happen, but maybe weren't yet happening. And so the persecution that he talks about is not so much um, the state-sanctioned martyrdom and persecution of Christians, it's more like social inconvenience. It's more like you don't get invited to the party, or somebody might not do business with you, or uh, somebody would say, we don't sell a house to your kind. It, it, it was a, a, a passive social ostracization, but there was at least one pretty extreme case of uh, torture and martyrdom in this time period, because we know that Nero was the emperor at the time, and that Nero uh, set fire to the slums of Rome and ended up blaming the Christians for that. But they were not accused, it was not persecution because of their faith, they were a convenient people group to to put the blame on. Uh, he, he, he could have used a lot, another uh, people group, but he chose to use uh, Christians. And so you, you have in 64 or so, when the fire broke out in Rome, you had that, uh, that convenient people group of Christians to dump the blame on. And so they were uh, sewed into animal skins and played in the Colosseum. And they were... Uh, 
uh, crucified and they were set on fire while alive and they were all those horrible things that we hear about, but way out in the hinterlands where Peter was writing. If you look on a map, you remember that we're talking about the provinces that were between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea in what we call Turkey today. And so that's that likely the persecution Peter is talking about is not quite as extreme. So that is a little bit of the background. And I, and I need to give you a little bit more that Robert won't go into. I promise this is bonus coverage. <laughs> At the very end of the first century BC, so the, the numbers are about to change over and start going forward instead of backwards. And so at the very end of the first century BC, the emperor, the very first emperor of Rome was Claudius, uh, was Augustus. And Augustus was concerned about the declining morality among Roman families. Okay, this is going to be important later on. Apparently, in the uh, late first century BC, as, as Augustus was the first emperor of Rome, uh, morality in Roman families had begun to slip. They, they weren't having kids. They were aborting babies. They were killing babies. Women were having affairs. Men were having affairs. Some didn't get married at all. And Augustus was worried about a number of things. He was worried about the number of illegitimate babies. In other words, babies that didn't have a family or a name or a, an inheritance, a citizenship. He was worried about the, uh, uh, the lax uh, structure of the family that, that, that men didn't seem to be honoring their roles and women didn't seem to be honoring their roles and children didn't seem to be honoring their roles. So Augustus enacted a number of reforms in the first century BC that had to do with restoring morality and civility and even religion, Roman religion, but religion to the Roman family. So, so you see where I'm going here, right? Uh, 60 years before, or uh, 100 years before Peter wrote this letter, the Roman family was perceived to be in decline. And Augustus, who initiated the idea of the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, he said, you know, the structure of the family is important to the Roman peace. The structure, the integrity of the family is important to uh, society being able to function, for us to be able to have uh, peace across our neighborhoods and our schools and our uh, our families, for us to have peace, we have to have structure, and structure has to be in the government, the military, and the family. All right, 100 years before Peter wrote this, and 2,000 years before right now. And so Augustus is saying, if the family breaks down, Rome breaks down. And he's not a Christian, okay? He, he believes in lots of gods. But his reforms had to do with uh, that anarchy results if there's no authority. So file that away. 
And all of a sudden, if you're kind of thinking ahead, Peter's instructions to wives, Paul's instruction to women, all of a sudden it's it's got some context. It's just not some misogynist being mean. It's okay, there's some context here. And we'll get to that in just a second. So back in chapter two, verses 11 through 25, what I preached on last Sunday, we talked about uh, Peter saying believers needed to act in a way that their conduct reflects their faith and that, that their conduct is actually a witness to others. So he said, number one, on the negative side, abstain from passions that rule you. Augustus would have said, uh, women, stop taking a manstress. Men, stop taking a mistress. Stop uh, having sex outside of your marital vows. Stop uh, abusing one another. Stop abusing slaves. Augustus would have said, "There's when order falls apart, the family falls apart. When the family falls apart, the society falls apart. So he said, your, your conduct... Verse uh, chapter two, verse thirteen through seventeen in the society. Uh, chapter two, verses eighteen through twenty-five, the workplace. He he talked about masters and slaves. Today we would talk about the workplace. Uh, chapter three, verses uh, one through seven, he's going to talk about the family, and then in verses eight and nine, he's going to talk about the church. So he's saying we need structure, we need order in the. Uh, the society, in the family, in the church, in the workplace. And so the motivation for believers here is to say our conduct is a witness. When we abstain, when we show a little bit of restraint, when we don't react, you know, you insulted me, I'm going to pull out a gun. Uh, when we react like the world is reacting, then we're no different from the world. But if we react in a way that's different, our conduct is a witness. In the same way, if our conduct is positive, if we affirm things that are uh, helpful to the structure of the society, the Pax Romana, if we, are, if we influence in a positive way, then even the government won't be able to say, Hey, those Christians are this, and 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 the 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 insinuation. There's a, a phrase later on in First Peter that says uh, to talk about the fiery trials, and and it's very possible he was talking about the fire in Rome. If the if the fiery trials, if that's what he was talking about, he's saying if nobody can accuse you of anything then the only thing that allows the persecution that happened in Rome is a psychotic emperor, is a rogue emperor. The laws will support, the, the, the people won't be able to have anything bad to say. That's kind of what we covered uh, in church on Sunday. So in this particular uh, passage, he starts off with wives, uh, verse 13, be subject to the Lord's for the Lord's sake in every human institution. So uh, I, I think I told you that the, there, there is a, um, um, what's called an inclusio here. There's a, a, 
a teaching unit within the larger unit that starts in chapter 2, verse 11, and goes through 4, verse 12. So this whole section on the household codes, uh, how do we react in society, in the workplace, in the family, in the church, those are contained within this inclusio, this larger teaching unit that is within the letter here in 1 Peter. So he starts off by saying in verse uh, we are in verse one of chapter three. He says, likewise, wives. So likewise, how does it uh, translate in your passage? In the same way. In the same way. You remember the purpose clauses, therefore, in order that. So this is another one of those connection clauses that has to refer to something else. It's like the word therefore. When we see it, we've got to do what? Look to see what it's there for. And so likewise is obviously referring back to the household codes of the society and the workplace. So he's now referring back to the way we treat government, the way we treat uh, our, our masters and our slaves, the way that we react to authority, even authority that is abused or misused. There is a, a response that we as believers uh, are supposed to make. So when he says likewise, he's not starting a new topic here. He's not just randomly saying, and I've been thinking about women. <laughs> Wives, you ought to just stay in the kitchen. He's not saying that. He is continuing a discussion that he's already started. And so there should be order in the government. There should be order in the way we respond to government. There should be order and structure and respect and godly conduct in the way we uh, are, react in the workplace, masters and slaves. There should be order in the way we conduct ourselves in our families. Now, what do you think goes through the mind of somebody who reads this in the first century? He might say, well, there's different kinds of marriages. In some marriages, you have a husband who's a believer and a wife who's not. In some marriages, you have a wife who's a believer and a husband who's not. Why did he not start by saying, husbands, use your authority wisely? Because that was assumed. If a husband became a believer, the rest of the family followed him. The, the husband was the authority in the home. In the Roman structure, uh, the husband was in the authority. And, and the, the, the Roman uh, influence would have been strong here. They would have gotten that. Now, as we talked about last week, I pointed you to a book that would uh, let you see it in a different light. Uh, Bruce Winter's book, uh, uh, Roman wives, Roman widows, or Roman wives and widows. And he talks about the new Roman woman who begin to exert her power uh, because of her, uh, her influence and her economy and uh, even her sexuality. He, he, he said there is, winter has a, a set of documents that are not biblical, but he says th that 
that there were instances where in the society in Rome, women were beginning to rebel within the home. That was the, the impetus for Augustus's reforms. So Peter is not saying anything that doesn't sound familiar in the Roman culture. But he puts a nuance here because he goes back to the Old Testament to say, this is not a Roman idea. God ordained roles and relationships within the family, beginning in the Garden of Eden, continuing on through Abraham and Sarah. And so he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word. So he's assuming the situation in the family where the wife is a believer and the husband is not. That's, that's his first scenario. They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. That is such a universal truth. Actions speak louder than words. Walk the walk, talk the talk, and above all else, walk the talk. The, there, we have lots of cliches that teach us that, uh, that our actions are stronger than our words in terms of being a compelling influence. Uh, uh, the, the scripture even says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It, it's his grace that leads us to uh, saving knowledge of him. And so he uses uh, the words, um, he uses the word uh, subject and again, if the word likewise is used here, it also refers back to chapter 2, verse 13, for the Lord's sake. So the same qualifiers uh, that, that, that were used to respect the government unless they legislate something that is against God. Respect the relationship between slaves and masters unless the master does something that violates uh, the, the, the word of God. And, and of course, the slave is on shaky ground there. In a lot of ways, the wife is too. This, it would be a mistake to see this scripture as something that constrains women. The readers in the first century would have read it as something that set them free. They, they would have seen it as a liberating text. Now, hold that in your mind and let's Let's kind of dive into it. Um, it's not talking about the doormat subjugation of women to men. And it is certainly not saying that a woman should be subject to all men. Be subject to whom? There's a qualifier. It didn't it doesn't just say your husband. It says your own husband, not somebody else's husband. Your own husband. He's, he's describing the structure in the home. He's not providing a universal uh, um, glass ceiling, so to speak. So, so he's saying your own husband. And if they don't obey the word, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, they may be one to the Lord, converted. They may be one without a word, by the conduct new topic in chapter uh, two chapter three verse three 
But let me first ask, does anybody want to chase that a little bit? Uh, I, I, want, I want to hear loud and clear that the, and I'll go ahead and bury the lead. One of the things Peter is saying is when you are seen as in sync with where Rome is trying to go, you don't have near as much work to do in helping people see the truth of the gospel. If you're not seeing as contra to don't obey any laws, don't follow any rules, don't observe the Pax Romana, now you've got a bullseye on the church. And Peter is simply sort of leading us to a place where that bullseye is not necessary because the laws of God sync with what, now maybe not for the same reason, Augustus's motivations were certainly not, we want to, to uh, uh, restore the order that God set in motion to start with. He's merely saying that these two ideals are not far apart. And if we are seen as observing the peace, then we have a lot less enemy territory to cross in helping to see the gospel. Okay, I'm, I'm not trying to say we suck up to the laws of the state. I'm trying to say that Peter was not starting a new topic, nor was he uh, introducing something in, in giving the husband some responsibility in just a minute. The women were liberated that he would even address that. So he qualifies a little bit with women. He says, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair the putting on of gold jewelry, jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Do you remember any other biblical writer who said similar things? Sermon on the Mount. What did Paul say to the church at Corinth? Same thing. Peter's writing to the churches in Asia Minor Paul wrote to the church on the uh, uh, Grecian Peninsula. So he, he was writing to the south of Greece, to Corinth. So, so there was a, a universal or, or a culture-wide uh, sort of thing that, uh, that there were some women who dressed in a way that was not to honor their husbands and that was not to honor God. Now, he's not talking about all women, and he's certainly not saying it is not biblical to braid your hair. <laughs> Rest easy there, Taylor. I'm good. You're good. <laughs> he's saying, why do you do these things? You know, why does a man work out? Why does a, a, a woman put on makeup? Is it, is it to, to say, I want to present myself in a way that is honorable, that is beautiful? Or is it to say, I'm trying to get something. I'm trying to chase down something. I'm trying to attract something. And he's saying, don't let your adornment. And of course, in Corinth, he's talking about the prostitutes. I'm not entirely convinced that Peter is not talking about this new Roman woman who dresses in a way to attract men who aren't her husband. And, and that's what Augustus was trying to say. This has got to stop. So uh, he's saying, it, 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 just take it at face value. And, and men, you're not excused from this. Let your beauty be internal. Let there be a strength of character. 
a strength of conduct, abstain from the passions that drive our culture and pursue the things of God and let your conduct be your testimony. Let your, your talk and your walk be one and the same. So he said, now he goes back to the Old Testament. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham. Now, again, Jennifer, Bible scholar, did Sarah always obey Abraham? She laughed at him. <laughs> She's known for her laughter. I'm 100 years old. You think I'm having a baby? I think not. And, and the angel says, why are you laughing? I wasn't laughing. Yes, you were. No, I wasn't. Yes, you were. So, so Peter is not trying to say that in the Old Testament, we have these, these Proverbs 31 women who don't really exist. He's trying to say in the order of things, when you think about the whole story, when Abraham left, Sarah followed her. When Abraham said, this is going to be what we do, Abraham did. She, she was the, uh, the, she observed the role. Did she have character strength? Yeah. Abraham was a lost cause without her. When she died, he was a mess. Equal in value, equal in responsibility, different in roles. And when the, uh, when Abraham was at his best, Sarah delighted in following him. When Abraham was not at his best, she had every right to question that. So then she says something really interesting. The last phrase in verse six, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening, you are Sarah's daughters. You are her children. You are like her. You imitate her. You, you are her uh, uh, image. If you do good and do not fear anything. Now, does that sound like a woman who's a doormat and subject to her husband? You are fearless. You don't fear anything. Um, a writer that... Uh, I, I found this week, uh, I loved the way she said it. I'm going to read a, a, a lengthy uh, quote from her blog. Um, she said, it helps to first acknowledge that what God says through Peter is true. We are weaker than men, not less intelligent, not less human, not incapable of reason or achievement, not emotionally broken, not more sinful, and not even without great strength, as the scripture testify. But as relates to our physical bodies, comparatively weaker. And yet many of us are or have been at some point uncomfortable with this because it's like the spirit of the age. It's an offense to our pride. So we might stubbornly spurn First Peter, even as we take every precaution when walking alone in a dark alley. She says, our being physically weaker by comparison, the fact that no matter how much time I spend in the gym, I'll likely never be able to overpower an average-sized man or beat him in an arm wrestling match is not a sign of something gone wrong. 
It's a sign of something to be handled with care because in it resides exquisite beauty, ability, and feminine strengths like the beautiful strength of thick beveled glass. A pregnant woman is one of the most defenseless humans in the face of the earth. She can barely rise to her feet after sinking into a comfy couch, yet who but the weaker vessel called woman can grow another human inside her body. Isn't that awesome? I just, I love that. Even though God gave husbands authority in the marriage and family, wives are equal to their husbands in spiritual privileges, eternal relationships. Both men and women are heirs of the gracious gift of life. Last part of the passage. Likewise, here he goes again. So likewise refers to what? Everything he just said about women, everything he just said about slaves, everything he just said about government. So he's going back to uh, all the way back to the beginning of the inclusio, back to the word beloved. He's going back to that and likewise refers back to all of that. So husbands, in light of the way you react to the government, in light of the way we react in employee, employer, slave, master relationships, in light of the way that women are to regard you as the leader of the house, lead. Don't, don't expect anybody to follow you. Don't expect any respect in the government. Don't respect to be respected. Don't expect to be respected by your employees. If you don't, here we go. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you, heirs with you, co-heirs. We are taking apart my mother's will as we speak. It's in probate court, and my mother was absolutely insistent that, that if there are four M&Ms, we each get one. <laughs> if, if there's a piece of furniture we all fight over we saw it in four pieces and the word co-heirs here it it brings that to mind that that it is just it is fair it is equal it is it is equal responsibilities equal value different roles and then he gives one of the scariest statements ever. You know, when Paul dealt with this in the Ephesian church, he said, wives, be submissive to your husband. And then he said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And Christ died for the church. Here he says, you do these things. He gives six verses to women. He gives only these two to men. And he says, you do this so that your prayers won't be hindered. I don't know about women. I'm a lot more terrified to be a man right now. If I don't treat my wife the way God thinks she deserves to be treated, he won't hear my prayers. <laughs> I don't know why women hate this passage. <laughs> I, I don't know why there's such pushback. 
but it encompasses the sexuality of our culture, the, the gender politics of our culture. It encompasses the, the divorce culture. It encompasses the, uh, the, the, the way that we uh, quibble over. It, it, it in no way affirms that in business, women should be given any different opportunity than men. It, it in no way affirms anything about what some people, even Christians, have tried to make this believe. It is saying to us that there is structure, there is order, and God intended it for society. The Romans just stumbled on it when they saw that when the immoral uh, actions of husbands and wives are beginning to tear down the fabric of the family, society suffers. And it's like God is going, duh. I've been telling you this since the uh, since the Ten Commandments were handed down at Sinai. Uh, it's just, it is. And so we pull away from this passage with the idea that God has spoken into the very fabric of culture through the very fabric of families. We want to impact culture. We make our home the one that every kid wants to come to for dinner because they see stability that they might not see in other places. We, we make marriages so strong that kids who have grown up in a, a divorced home go, I'm going to break the cycle because I like that model better than I like what I've seen at home. And, and we, we incur the, uh, the, um, the wrath of the culture when we lord it over them, but when our conduct, what we do and what we won't do simply speaks to the truth of God, then in itself, it is attractive. All right, Zoom folks, I hadn't paid you much attention. Do you have questions or comments? I have one question about the quote you read from the uh, female author a little while ago. Did you say uh, that she said equal in value, equal in role, roles different in responsibility? No, or do I, I have said it backwards? That. I said that. You uh, said that. Okay. Uh, uh, the, the lady's name is Abigail Dodds. And she wrote um, a book called A, in parentheses, Typical Women, Free whole and called in Christ and her the play on words is atypical women but put a in parentheses typical women got it that's but uh, what was that particular quote as it related to the equality of roles and value she was trying to address the thought that weaker meant less uh, valuable or weaker meant she says weaker only refers to physical strength. Right. That's okay. The only thing that was here. And that was the case then, and that is the case now. Is that what she was relaying? I would say so. Okay. I would say, you know, when we talk about a transgender swimmer, we're we're acknowledging that she has the strength of a man, even though she dresses like a woman, and and that 
that we we just really can't get around the physical discrepancy uh, between the way a, a man's body is built and the way a woman's body is built. Is that universal? Of course not. There are lots of women who could win physical strength contests over men, but I think we would probably all agree that in a universal or in a generalized statement, the physical strength of a woman is a little less than a man. And will always be. I think so. Pretty much. Okay, got it. Anything else? All right. Well, we are trying to keep this to around 30 minutes so that we can make it work with a podcast. So if there's nothing else, I'll say good night to all of you and see you Sunday. And uh, we'll preach this text. Robert will preach this text. And I'm looking forward to it.